Abraham today in the next few verses in Hebrews 11, where he did exactly that. You know, it's one thing to trust God when things are going your way. It's another thing to trust Him when things are not going your way. Not all of us like to talk about sacrifice and suffering and adversity. In fact, if we could take a vote, we would all vote unanimously, get rid of adversity, no doubt. I don't like it. Forget suffering, forget pain, give me the smooth road. But God loves you too much to do that. In Hebrews 11, verse 17, we read, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Let's pray. Father, we bring our hearts before you at the beginning of this study, and we ask that you might soften them. For the seed of your truth, Lord, you know our past. You know what we have brought into this service this morning in terms of experience. But above that, you know what we will be facing tomorrow, this next week, this next month and year, things that we don't even know. Prepare us, Father, to live a life of faith in the good times and in the tears of pain. We ask it in Jesus' name. I received a letter this week from somebody who has attended our Sunday evening Bible studies. And if some of you have come, you know that we've been dealing with Matthew chapter 24, which speak all about the signs of the end. And it says that in the end times there would be famine, there would be earthquakes, there would be pestilence, that these would be like birth pains upon a woman that begin, but then they kind of snowball, they gather momentum. It said that those who believe in God will be persecuted and a great trial and tribulation will come upon the earth in the form of judgment. And in the letter, this person was a little bit worried. Uh, He said, I listened to the Bible study the last couple of weeks and it was troublesome. And then I went home and watched the news and that was even more troublesome because I see that these things are happening. And this person in the letter said something to effect of... um, It was almost too much. Couldn't you tell us about the protection that we're going to have in the Lord? While it's true, I believe the church will be taken up before the great tribulation, we are not immune from suffering or from persecution or from tribulation. All who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. We don't have to look for trouble. It'll just come all on its own. And sometimes it leaves us wondering, God, why? What is in your wisdom? Why would you allow this thing to pass into my life if you love me so much? There's the story of St. Teresa, the Spanish reformer in the 16th century. After traveling and being weary from persecution, she said, God, if this is the way you treat your friends, no wonder you don't have very many. There's a point of disgust. Why is this happening to me? Jesus spoke of suffering, and he said everybody's going to have it. He said in one text in the book of Matthew that God makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. Billy Graham, in one of his books, Looking into the Future, based upon the prophecies, said, it seems that the human race may be heading toward the climax of the tears, the hurts, and the wounds of the centuries. Suffering is the common lot of all people everywhere, 
believers and non-believers alike. But Christians often have their own particular types of suffering in addition to the normal range of human miseries. Many times they suffer because they are followers of Jesus Christ, and many times they cry out with the psalmist, Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has He in anger withheld compassion? Suffering has bothered people to the extent that some have created a theology against it. In seeing the misery and the suffering that people go through, the lot of humanity, there are people who say, certainly Christians must be immune from this. Certainly God wants all of His children to be healthy all the time. All they have to do is claim their healing. In fact, some in this theology will say that God is obligated to heal every believer. First rule of thumb, God's not obligated to do anything. He doesn't have to do anything at all. And to pin him against the wall and say, I claim this, I want perfect health and perfect wealth, is absolutely ridiculous. We are dealing with sovereignty here. And God in His love and kindness will often miraculously work to heal bodies. We have seen Him do that. But God in His sovereignty will also allow testings to come and adversity to strengthen us. Paul the Apostle said, To you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. That's an interesting verse. God has allowed you not only to believe, but He's allowed you to suffer. You think, thanks. I don't want that allowance. But you've got to understand a lot of the Bible centers around suffering. We worship a suffering Savior. One who paid the ultimate penalty for our sins. And if we want to be people of faith, we have to realize that the essential part of growth of faith is when faith is tested. One ancient sage said, God prepares great men for great tasks by great trials. The purposes of verses 17, 18, and 19, following on the wings of Abraham's life of faith, is simply this, that faith in God, if it's true faith in God, allows you to go through the worst times and still obey God even though times are bad. That obedience is not something that just happens in the good times, but also in the most difficult circumstances of life. When you're pinned against the wall and you're suffering the worst possible type of testing or trial, it's possible to obey God. Because as you know, relationship is tested by sacrifice, right? Isn't that how relationships are tested? Relationships are not tested by feelings. Oh, I just feel so good about you today. Relationships are tested by sacrifice. That's why people come and make vows at altars and they say, until death do us part. For better or for worse. For richer or for poorer. In sickness and in health. Now I realize that most young brides and grooms hear only half of that. They hear better, health, riches. They don't think about what could happen, but when that relationship is put under the test of sacrifice, that's really where the value is proved. In our text, there's a few basic things we want to look at with this man's faith during a time of testing. First of all, that his faith was tested, but also that his faith faith was triumphant. He passed the test. And also that this was a type. It was a type. We're going to look at those three things. First of all, it says it was tested by faith. Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. 
And he who received the promise offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac shall your seed be called. The word tested means to put to the test in order to prove character. In order to prove character. God tested Abraham to prove the quality of his faith, the character of his faith. There's a big difference between a temptation and a test. Though sometimes they interface. A test is different from a temptation. A temptation is from the devil to make you fall. A test can come from God to make you stand, to temper you. The motivation of the devil is he wants to trip you up. God wants to build you up. And you could also look at a trial as a vote of confidence. God knows what you can handle. If you couldn't handle it, God wouldn't allow it to come in your life. God, why? This is too tough. No, it's not. If it was too tough, you wouldn't have it. I know exactly what you can handle. And if you can bench press 50 pounds, I'm not going to put 400 on you and crush you. Peter, and I'm going to read this text to you. I've read it many times. And if you've been a Christian long, you've read it. But listen carefully in light of this. He said, you greatly rejoice... Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come. These trials have come. So that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, it may be proved genuine. It may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So just as fire refines precious metal, God sends trials to refine faith. Not to break us down, but to build us up to temper us, to prove the quality of our faith. In the Pacific Northwest, codfish is a very sought-after item on dinner tables at restaurants. The demand has gotten so big that people in the Pacific Northwest have people ship from the East Coast this fresh Atlantic codfish. They experimented when they first shipped it over to the Northwest. They tried different methods. First of all, they froze the fish and they shipped it, and then they thawed out, and of course you know it's just not the same as fresh fish. It lost a lot of its flavor. So they tried another method. They put the codfish in tanks of fresh seawater so that these codfish were alive. They left alive, and they arrived live in the seawater. But again, a problem. For some reason, the texture was mushy. It wasn't firm, and it had lost some of its flavor. So they tried a third method, which proved absolutely ingenious. They shipped the codfish in fresh seawater, alive, but they put in the tank the natural enemy of the codfish, the catfish. So the catfish chased the codfish from the time it left the plain, the east coast, all the way to the west coast, and guess what? It was fresh and it was flavorful. Has God put some appointed catfish in your tank to chase you around. Why did this happen? To prove your faith, to test your faith, because it's more precious than gold which perishes. He wants it to be strengthened, and so he will test it that way. Charles Spurgeon, I quote a lot because I like his style. He said, God gets his best troops from the highlands of affliction. The best troops from the highlands of affliction. Now, some Christians get worried about the difference between temptation and testing. They sit there and try to figure it out. Is this from the devil or is this from God? The important thing is what you do with it and what happens when you do with that trial, whatever you do with it. It's the result. 
Sometimes it's both. Sometimes the enemy will attack you and God will let him. He did it with Paul. He said, this is a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. He also said, God let it happen. In fact, God prescribed that it happen. God sent the catfish. In Joseph's life in the Old Testament, he was sold into Egypt. He became a slave of Potiphar. He was falsely accused. He was put in jail. I would say the enemy was trying to get him. But you know, a lot of Christians would see that happening and goes, I just can't believe the devil's doing this, the devil's doing that. And but you know what? Joseph submitted to it. And at the end of his life, believing that all things work together by God's purpose for his good, he said to his brothers who sold him into Egypt, he said, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant this for good. doesn't matter where it came from. What matters is that I'm going to be faithful to God and let this temper my faith, my trust in him. An illustration I have used for a long time because it has spoken to my heart for so many years comes from a little book that I've used as a devotional called Streams in the Desert. And on one of the pages in Streams in the Desert, it tells us that if you took a $5 bar of steel and you manipulated that $5 bar of steel, you made horseshoes out of it, it would be now worth $10. Take that same bar of steel... Manipulate it some more. Make sewing needles out of that bar of steel. It'll be worth 350 bucks. Take that same bar of steel, manipulate it, fire it, hammer it some more, and make knife blades, and it'll be worth $32,000. Take the same $5 bar of steel, hammer it, fire it, manipulate it, pressure it, and make springs for watches. It'll be worth a quarter of a million, $250,000. You think, what poor, hard pressure that bar of steel has to go through. But the point is, the more it's hammered, the more valuable it is. The more pressure, the more it's worth. Your faith, much more precious than gold, God proves, God tempers, God appoints tests to come in your life to strengthen you. Let's um, keep a marker here and turn back to Genesis chapter 22. And as our usual method is. Let's look at the original story that the writer of Hebrews is referring to. Let's look at this test. Chapter 22 of Genesis, verse 1. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. I always like that. I don't know why, but it's just, you know, God doesn't just go boo. He calls him first. Abraham, here I am. And he said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. This is absolutely impossible for me to fathom what Abraham must have felt like. Being a father myself, being protective by nature, also being a minister, I've watched people lose loved ones. And I know this, that although it's very difficult to lose a spouse or an aunt or an uncle, probably the most difficult is when somebody loses a child. The death of a child can take a toll on a human being like nothing else. I watched my mother age 10 years, it looked like, in a week when my brother died. Abraham, remember that son I promised you, the one you love? Sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. Don't you suppose that three-day journey seemed like an eternity? Going from Beersheba up to Mount Moriah, knowing exactly what you're going to do when you got there. 
A couple things to notice about this. First of all, this test came after a time of preparation. It says, it came to pass after these things. And what that amounts to is about 20 years. There's a 20-year gap between chapters 21 and 22. During that time gap, if you look at the text, it was a time of rest. It was a time of blessing. The trials, the heartache that Abraham had experienced in the earlier years seemed to have a hiatus. Isaac had been born to Abraham, this aged man. It says in chapter 21 that he called upon the name of the everlasting God. It was a time of peace. It was a time of enjoyment. I can sort of picture Abraham taking Isaac for long walks, saying, Isaac, let me tell you again the story of how you got here. You are indeed a miracle baby. God has something special for you, pal. And let me tell you about the land you're walking on. God said that we'd own it. Us and all of our relatives one day through history, this is our land. Little did Abraham know that during those 19, 20 years, that that time of peace was actually to prepare him for the worst thing he'd ever face, which was this commandment, go take your son to Mount Moriah and offer him as a sacrifice. There's an old Yiddish proverb that says, when God gives burdens, God gives shoulders. And the point is this, when God allows you to go through a time of adversity, he will prepare you adequately. He'll do something in your life. He'll want to build you up. He'll give you opportunity. He'll give you resources. He won't sneak behind you and go, boom, to make you fall. He wants to make you stand. And to make you stand, He will often prepare you during a time of spiritual growth, spiritual success, so that you'll be able to handle it. Then I want you to notice, and it's pretty obvious, that God touched the most sensitive area of His life. There could be nothing else that God could have touched that would have been more sensitive as a nerve than saying, go take Isaac, the son whom you love, that's how it's phrased, and take him and kill him on Mount Moriah. But remember, this is a test. God did not ordain human sacrifice. In fact, in Leviticus, he spoke against taking humans and killing them for sacrifice. And God knew he wasn't going to follow through with this, but Abraham didn't know that. It was a test. It was a test of his faith and love. Abraham, do you love me? Well, of course Abraham loved God. God said, leave Ur of the Chaldees. We saw that last week. He did it. He proved his faith and his love. Wander in the desert. He did it. Wait on me for a promise. He did it. But here's the ultimate test. Now the promise has been fulfilled. Give him back. Take your son, your only son whom you love, and sacrifice him on one of the mountains that I will show you on Mount Moriah. What is your Isaac? What is the object of your supreme affection, your attention, your place of security? Whatever it is, don't be surprised if God touches that. If God tests you regarding your love for Him in that most difficult area, you think, well, if that's the way God is, then forget Him. I don't want to serve a God who would demand that. Listen, God will have no rivals. God will have no competition. And God will test your love for Him. Love cannot be tested by how you feel. Or by, you know, God's not going to say, did you have um, warm feelings about me at church today? Well, if you did, then I can just know that your love for me is so awesome. So I'm going to test your love for me by just letting you have warm feelings every time you worship. No. Your love for God and my love for God is tested by what we're prepared to do, not by how we feel.
And it's not always by what we're willing to give, but what we're willing to give up. Do you love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, everything? Jesus in the New Testament challenged the disciples and He said, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And he who finds his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Your Isaac could be a number of things. Maybe it's not one thing. Maybe it's several things. It could be a place. It could be a a home, an area that you live in. And you think, oh, this is perfect. We just got it fixed up. I never want to leave. I remember when I lived in Huntington Beach. I used to go out every morning with my Bible. And I'd have talks with God. I had my quiet time, my devotional time on the ocean. And I'd look at the seagulls and the waves, and it was the balmy weather, and i think, this is awesome. Lord, I just thank you that I'm in this part of the globe. I love it here. And I surfed just about every day at that time. And I said, you know, God, if you ever ask me to give this up, I'll do it, but it'll be tough. There came a day when God said, give it up. It could be a person that is your Isaac. Oh, that's the person for me. I've got to marry that person. Oh, that's the only thing that will fulfill me. When my wife and I were engaged, well, you got to understand something. Basically, by nature, I am a flake. <laughs> I admit that freely. I dated my wife and after a few months broke up, didn't give her a good reason, gave her some spiritual reason that didn't mean anything. Basically, I didn't want a commitment. She lived in Hawaii and I was in California and I persuaded her to come back to the mainland after a couple years and we'll test the relationship again, we'll date. And sure enough, she was back about a month and I asked her to marry me. After I asked her to marry me, came back a few days later and said, I don't want to marry you. I don't think it's God's will. I don't think I can go through with it. And I'm vacillating back and forth, and I cause her to start vacillating and wondering back and forth. And one evening as we're discussing this, she said, let me tell you something. I love you so much that if I'm not God's highest for you, I don't want to marry you. I said, what? Come again? She said, let me explain it to you. You're slow. Let me explain it to you. I love you. I want to marry you. But I love you so much that my love won't be selfish. If I'm not God's best for you, and I want to see you get God's highest and best, if that's not me, I don't want to marry you. That's how much I love you. So maybe it's good. Maybe we should break it off. And I said, oh, will you marry me? (laughs) It could be a person. And God says, release that person. Of course, if you're married, don't do that. It says, hang on to that person. Love that person. Sacrifice for that person. Whatever it is, God may give it back to you when you give it to Him, or He may not. Let Him decide, all right? Know that God is big enough and smart enough and sovereign enough to know what you need. Father knows best. God knows exactly what He's requiring of you, and if He says, I require it of you, I'm touching that area of your life, say, you're God, not me. You can have it. It's yours. And think of it this way. If God gave it to you in the first place, you releasing it isn't that big of a sacrifice. It was His to begin with. People say, I'm making such a sacrifice for the Lord. They said that about David Livingstone, missionary to Africa. He wrote a letter back and he said, People talk of the sacrifices I've made in spending so much of my life in Africa. 
But can something be called a sacrifice with so great a debt owed to our God that can never be repaid? I never made a sacrifice, he said. His faith was tested. Take your son, your only son whom you love. But then we see his faith was triumphant. Verse 3. Genesis 22. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, split the wood for the burnt offering, arose and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes, saw the place far off. And Abraham said to his young man, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac his son, took the fire in his hand, a knife, and two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and he said, My father, he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Can't you just imagine the scene? Abraham went, That's a hard one to answer. But notice his answer. Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself, or literally, God will provide himself a lamb for the burnt offering. And two of them went together, and they came to the place which God had told them. Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order and bound Isaac his son, laid him on the altar upon the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand, took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked behind them. Behind him was a ram caught in a thicket in its thorns, by its horns, excuse me. So Abraham went and took the ram, offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mountain of the Lord it shall be provided. That next morning was the demonstration of the greatest act of faith I have ever read of. To be able to get a donkey, get it all fixed up, cut wood knowing that your son will be burnt upon that wood, at least in his mind he was, and to get ready to take a three-day journey up to this place of sacrifice on Mount Moriah. How do you think he slept the night before? Well, dads, you can kind of answer that, I think, for yourself. Have you ever had a child sick or especially if that child is going to have surgery the next morning? You don't get a good night's sleep the night before. He's tossing and turning, no doubt. But his faith was triumphant. He did it. I think he did it for a couple reasons. Number one, he had been through the school of hard knocks. It's a good school to go through. Best way to learn is hard knocks. He learned about disobedience. He remembered when he said, God, I'm not going to trust you here in the land of Canaan. I'm going to go down to Egypt. There's more food. I know you said you'd take care of me here, but adios. He remembered what that was like. He also remembered when he got Hagar pregnant instead of waiting on God. Disobedience had been, in some areas, a hallmark of his life. Even though he trusted God, he had lapses of faith. He thought, as difficult as this is, I've got to obey. But there's something more than that. More than just looking back on his failures, he looked back on God's track record. The key to his triumph is given to us. I want you to look at it in Hebrews again, chapter 11. It tells us the secret to his triumphant obedience. Something happened in his mind. It says that he uh, offered his son. 
of whom it was said, verse 18, and Isaac your seed shall be called. Verse 19 is the answer. Accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead from which he also received him in a figurative sense. He took something into account. The word accounting is logizomai. We get the word logic from it. It's a mathematical procedure, literally. It means to calculate or to reason out in your mind. To take in consideration all of the factors, all the variables, all the options, and come to a settled conclusion based upon your reasoning. He took something into account that God was able to raise up from the dead his son. Abraham was faced with a problem. The problem wasn't that he just loved his son, which was a big enough problem. Emotionally, he was torn, no doubt. But the problem is this. God gave me a son. I was 100 years old, just about, when my son was born. Why would God give me a son? And this son is the hinge of all of the future blessings. God said, through this son, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Through this son, I will have descendants more in number than the stars of heaven. Through this son, I'm going to inherit the land of Canaan. All right. Why would God do that and then say, give him back, kill him? He's reasoning this entire thing out. So when God said, Abraham, take Isaac and go kill him, what did Abraham think of? He thought, wait a minute. What about all those promises? What am I going to tell Sarah? Why would you promise me a son and then take him? But now look at verse 5. And I'm having you switch back now to Genesis 22. Verse 5. And Abraham said to his young men, and follow carefully this little conversation, stay here with the donkey, the lad and I. That's Isaac. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. Did you get that? He didn't say, we're going to go worship and I'll be back alone He says, we're coming back. What do you mean? What do you mean we're coming back? God said, go sacrifice him. Sometime during that sleepless night, his mind began to reason, legizomai, and he accounted that God was able to raise him from the dead. His thought processes were something like this. Fact, I'm an old man. Fact, God gave me a son against all possibility in my old age. Fact, God said this son is the hinge of all the future promises. If that's so, then the only thing that can happen if I kill my son, for all these promises to be fulfilled, is God's going to have to raise him from the dead. He was faced with a couple options. Option number one, God is erratic and can't be trusted. He says, do this, and then he cancels out all of his promises, so you can't trust him. Or number two, God is absolutely trustworthy because of his track record. And he took it all into logical account. And he said, settled conclusion. If I kill my son, he's going to have to come back from the dead. So, guys, we're going to go worship. We will be back. It's not the Arnold Schwarzenegger, I'll be back. It's we'll be back. I and my son. Those were words of faith. And isn't that compatible with God's nature anyway? It was absolutely logical what he thought of. Because based on the track record, if God can give miraculously a 90-year-old woman a baby, God could raise up that baby even if that baby's dead. So he accounted that God was able by his resources to do that. There's another secret in verse 5 
He says, we will go yonder and worship. This whole sacrifice of his son became an act of worship. Instead of being preoccupied with what he gave up, he was preoccupied with God. Folks, there's a secret there. We are so preoccupied with what we're giving up, our trial. And instead of glancing at our trial and gazing at the Lord, we glance up at the Lord, but we gaze at our trial. There was an author who went into a church in Connecticut, and he noticed that in the worship service during the communion liturgy, that a woman had her hands raised, an older woman. The thing that was different about this woman is her hands were marred, curled. They had been deformed by some disease, twisted. Next to her were crutches leaning against the pew. And this man looking at her said, Dear God, what causes people in this condition to sing hallelujah? I'll tell you what causes them. They're preoccupied with a holy God. They're preoccupied with a loving God. Instead of questioning, God, why have you made me this way? As God, in the midst of this, I praise you. You're faithful. You're trustworthy. That's where Abraham was at. Each of us has an Isaac or will have an Isaac. Probably not just one, probably many. Different times in your Christian life, God will come and say, I'm requiring this of you. Give it up. I'm touching this. I'm taking this back. I'm reorganizing and restructuring your company, your life. Let me have it. Why is God doing that? Why the pain? Chinese proverb says, Gems can't be gems without friction. Neither can men become real spiritual men without trials. So God puts the friction in your life to strengthen, to hone. Now back to uh, Hebrews 11. One final thing. First of all, we saw his faith was tested. Secondly, his faith was triumphant. Finally, his faith was a type. For it says at the end of verse 19, God was able to raise him up from the dead, which he also received him in a figurative sense. The word there is parabole. It means parable or figure or type. It is amazing, and I can't pass this up, it's amazing to notice the parallels between the event of Abraham and Isaac and the event of another father giving his son as a sacrifice, God giving Jesus on the cross. The only difference is that God stopped Abraham from going through with it, but God did not stop himself from giving his son to the world as a sacrifice. But the parallels are amazing. Here's one. The very first time love is used in the Bible is used in Genesis 22. That's significant. The first time love is ever used in the Bible, it's used of a father giving his son as a sacrifice. And the wording is suggestive. Take now your son, your only son, even though it wasn't his only son. Ishmael was his firstborn. Your only begotten. In Greek, in the New Testament, it's monogene. It's the same word that is used for the only begotten son of God. The first time love is used, it's the heartbreaking love of a father sacrificing his son. Second parallel. Take your son to Mount Moriah. Later on, the temple was built on Mount Moriah. Lambs were sacrificed to atone for the sins of the people. But years later, Jesus Christ walked outside of Jerusalem to the very pinnacle of Mount Moriah and hung on a cross on the same mountain. And how prophetic it is then when God says, In the mountain of the Lord it shall be seen. God will provide Himself a sacrifice. But it's even better how long did Abraham journey from Beersheba to Mount Moriah? Three days. Which means in the mind of Abraham, Isaac was dead three days. It wasn't until the third day when God said, Stop the knife. On that third day, 
He was raised up, it says, in a figurative sense. He was dead to his father for three days. I imagine when Abraham was ready to plunge that knife into his son that heaven stood in amazement. Here's a demonstration of a man that loves God this much. But I'm sure that heaven stood at even greater amazement when Jesus hung on the cross and they said, look how much God loves men. He went through with it. He gave his son for these people, this rebellious crowd, that they might know eternal life. You might be in school. I'm talking about God's school. The curriculum might be Adversity 101. Or Advanced Suffering. (laughs) Don't know the stage. But to go back and answer the letter, the study bothers me. Can't you tell us that we're... No, I can't tell you that you're immune. You know why? God loves you too much. Christians like tea bags aren't much good until they get into some hot water. Then they're proved in their worth. And next time you face a hardship as a Christian and you're wondering, God, wait a minute, I've been faithful. I've loved you. I've done what you want me to do. Why would you require this of me? The test is to make you stand strong, not to fall flat. There is a little parable that fits perfectly. There was once a tiny little plant, very small and stunted. It grew underneath a huge oak tree. The little plant valued the shade from the big oak and felt secure to rest by it. One day a woodsman came by and began to chop down the big oak tree. The tiny plant began to weep and cry out, Oh no, now I won't have any shelter. Now the rough winds will blow upon me and the storms will pull out my roots. No, no, said the wise woodsman. Now the sun will be able to get to you. Now the rain will be able to fall on you in more abundance than before. And now you will be able to grow and not stay stunted any longer. And now, since you'll get more sunshine and rain, your flowers will blossom like they never blossomed before. God, why? Because I love you and I want you to grow up. And so here, let me write a prescription. Here's a trial. Out of love, I want you to grow and blossom. Father, We thank you for your prescriptions. You are all wise and all powerful. And who are we, mere human beings, to doubt the sovereign, omnipotent hand of God? In fact, we rejoice in what you allow to come in our lives. We thank you. Moreover, we are thankful for this type, this figure that you gave your son. And you didn't spare him because if you spared his life, it would mean certain eternal death for us. And so we thank you for it. And I pray, Father, that people who have not experienced the forgiving benefits of knowing Jesus Christ, of surrendering their life for better or for worse, would do so this morning. We're not immune, any of us, from problems. The great thing about being a Christian, Lord, we know is that you weave all these things for our good. They come for a purpose.